0: Welcome to Sentient
1: Developments, the podcast...
2: All right, welcome once again to Sentient Developments, the podcast. My name is George Dvorsky. I'll be your host for about the next hour or so as we cover such topics as futurism, transhumanism, science, and technology. On today's episode, and there's lots to cover, I'm going to bring you up to speed on PETA's case against SeaWorld. I hate to break it to you, but they did lose the case as expected. I'm going to talk about an initiative to uh, secure legal rights for whales and dolphins. I'm going to make a distinction between human enhancement, rather, sorry, animal enhancement, and the rights of non-human persons. I'm going to look into enhancing memory. I was recently quoted in uh, Slate magazine, and I wanted to address that. Then we're going to talk about other things that you can do to enhance your memories that don't involve um, biological enhancements. We're going to discuss artificial intelligence and its increasing role in healthcare. And we will finish the show by dis- discussing body modifications and the potential for cosmetic enhancements and some of the ethics behind cosmetic enhancements. But first, some news. For those of you who tuned in last week, you will remember my sort of tale of losing my job and being on the job hunt. Yes, it's true. Uh, I used to work in the uh, marketing industry and uh, doing operations, and uh, I am currently, as I say, in between jobs, looking to do a career change right now, and looking to get more into bioethics and healthcare and wellness and those sorts of industries. And further to that, I did meet last year with the chair uh, of the Masters of Health Sciences and Bioethics program at the University of Toronto's Joint Center for Bioethics to discuss their program. And my application is in, and we're ready to rock on that. All I need is their acceptance, and uh, I'll be starting on that in September. And it looks very promising. So I will continue to keep you posted on that front. But in addition to that, just plugging away, uh, sending out applications and resumes. Uh, there was a couple of interesting things. Uh, one this week was to the Ontario Genomics Institute, which could have some interesting potentials there. Obviously, that's very, that's something that I'm very uh, interested in. And, uh, a group whose uh, agenda really is very much aligned with my own, which is the, the promotion and, and, and advancement of progressive technologies like genomics. Okay. So there's that. Um, This is a very cool week for those who are CrossFitters because it is the start of the CrossFit Open. This week, this, this year, it'll be a five week competition. Uh, there'll be five different workouts with one announced each week. Last year, there were about 26,000 competitors. This year, there are at least 55,000 CrossFitters taking part, which I believe will be the largest single competition ever in the history of fitness. Simultaneous competition involving so many people. And uh, the first workout is actually going to be, get this, as many burpees as you can do in seven minutes. And uh, for those of you who don't know what a burpee is, it's a very, I guess it's a a fairly straightforward movement. It's a complete body weight movement. Starting from a standing position, you go down uh, onto your chest get yourself back up again, and then you have to jump six inches off the ground. And the, re- the way they're going to ensure this standard is that you actually have to touch an object that is exactly six inches above your extended arm length. And uh, you have seven minutes to do as many of those as possible. And uh, burpees are one of the more taxing body um, weight movements in CrossFit. Everybody hates them. It's universally loathed movement, and uh, leave it to CrossFit headquarters to program that as the first workout. As many burpees as you can do in seven minutes. That's going to be kind of brutal. It's going to be a, that's a long period of time to be just doing burpees. So that's the kind of nonsense that we're up against in this competition. So I'll keep you up to speed on that. And of course, I'm nursing a couple of injuries. Murphy's law dictates that that would be the case. About a week and a half ago, a week and a half ago, I was completely healthy, injury-free, ready to go. And then uh, we had um, uh, a number of uh, days of very heavy lifting. And I even went in there and did some strength work, aggravated my lower back, and and I also on, on another day doing clean and jerks, I aggravated my uh, upper, shoulder, my right top right shoulder blade, and my neck. Now that's getting a bit better, but it's my lower back that's been a problem. So I've been taking the last few days off, which is not making me happy, uh, but it needs to be done so that I can participate in the open. And back injuries are not fun for those of you who uh, suffer from back pain and back aches. It kind of Thing about a, a back injury, it takes it, it takes your it takes you completely out of the picture, really, because you, you're miserable. You can't really do anything. You can't move properly. Every time you get up and get down and bend over, it's 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 aggravating and agonizing. Uh, I almost would rather have like an injury, you know, like a highly localized injury on a on a finger or a wrist or ankle or something. But uh, this is kind of like I said, whole body type injury. When you do have a back injury, anyways, enough of my griping and complaining. I will, you know muck my way through this silly burpee workout and uh, hopefully by next week I will be in a much healthier and better position to participate let's take a break and listen to some music and when we get back going to bring you up to speed on PETA's case against SeaWorld and some other issues as they pertain to the advancement of the rights of non-human persons lost its case against SeaWorld. Just to bring you up to speed on that, Peta had named five plaintiffs uh, who were making their case against SeaWorld, the five plaintiffs being orca whales, which was unprecedented. And the whales were making the claim on behalf of their lawyer that they were enslaved by SeaWorld and they were being forced to work against their will. And and, and similarly, they're also being confined in the aquariums against their will. And the lawyer uh, in question here for PETA was citing the U.S. Constitution and specifically the 13th Amendment, which is against slavery. Now, PETA may have lost its case against SeaWorld, but it did mark an important step forward in this struggle, which is to recognize that highly sapient animals are persons. Now, this is not going to happen overnight, and it's through cases like these that the idea of non-human persons will be normalized in society. So it was U.S. District Judge Jeffrey Miller, specifically, who dismissed the lawsuit. And uh, he um, basically said in very explicit terms, he said that animals are not persons. And it's interesting that he used that language, uh, animals are not persons, because uh, on the one hand, as frustrating it is to hear that claim, it's also encouraging to hear that the judge actually understood the issue at hand. My concern was that he was just going to say that this is silly and uh nonsensical, but he quickly or you know or very practically understood that this was an issue as it pertains to the designation of the of these animals as persons, and it was on that on those grounds that he dismissed the case. Now, why I think that's particularly um, promising is is that uh, once uh, once the language is properly articulated in a case like this. I would expect that in future, uh, as more and more cases like this do emerge, that, um, eventually, uh, this particular issue will may progress further and deeper into the court system and such that, um, hopefully one brave and progressive judge or series of judges will in fact grant some non-human persons, some non-human persons exactly that, the designation that they are persons. Now, PETA, they're not backing down yet. And according to their, uh, lawyer, Uh, Jeffrey Kerr, he said that, quote, we're going to continue to pursue every available avenue to fight for these animals. We are looking at all options. And um, Judge Miller, he did take the case under advisement following a hearing, and this was back on February the 7th. And ultimately, like I said, he noted that animals are not people, and he dismissed the case. Uh, He also noted that slavery and involuntary servitude are uniquely human activities as those terms have been historically and contemporaneously applied. And there's simply no basis to construe the 13th Amendment as applying to non-humans. And that's what uh, the judge, again, said in his ruling. So again, he says that slavery and involuntary servitude are things that can only be experienced by humans. So you can't have non-human slaves. How about that? Well... Uh, like I said, PETA, they're not going to give up their fight, and the group are arguing that orcas are, in fact, slaves, and they would normally swim up to 100 miles a day in the wild, but are instead contained in small concrete tanks at SeaWorld, where they swim in circles, and I'm sure they're feeling very claustrophobic. So PETA is going to regroup, determine their next uh, plan of action, and they did not offer any specifics, but um, he, uh, PETA and the, the lawyer noted that there was an overwhelming uh, positive media attention to the case, And uh, they've received some pretty good feedback. Um, So that's um, interesting news there. Way to go, Peta, for pushing the envelope of what's possible here. And good luck next time in terms of your next action in this regard. Now, along the same lines, um, there are campaigners not us, by the way, at the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies and our Rights of Non-Human Persons Program. This is a different set of campaigners, and this is outside of PETA as well. They believe that dolphins and whales should be granted rights on account of their intelligence, and they're pushing for the animals to be protected under international law. Now, this group, they're comprised of scientists and ethicists, and they, uh, they spoke in Vancouver recently, and they're basically saying that there is now sufficient evidence of marine mammals' intelligence, self-awareness, and complex behavior to enshrine their light their rights in legislation. So what they did is they put together what they're calling the Declaration of Rights for Cetaceans, cetaceans being uh, dolphins, whales, and per- porpoises, and that they would be protected as non-human persons and have a legally enforceable right to life. Now, if this uh, declaration were to be incorporated into law, the declaration would bring legal force to bear on whale hunters, on marine parks, aquariums, and other entertainment venues, and they'd be barred from keeping dolphins, whales, or porpoises in captivity. And uh, there's a quote from Tom White, who is the director of the Center for Ethics and Business at Loyola, Marymount University in L.A. He says, quote, We're saying that science has shown that individuality, consciousness, and self-awareness are no longer unique human properties. That poses all kinds of challenges. Dolphins are non human persons. A person needs to be an individual, and if individuals count, then the deliberate killing of individuals of this sort is ethically the equivalent of deliberately killing a human being. The captivity of beings of this sort, particularly in conditions that would not allow for a decent life, is ethically unacceptable, and commercial whaling is ethically unacceptable. End quote. Now the group spoke at the annual meeting in Vancouver of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and they did so to raise support for the declaration among scientists and the visiting public. This was a 10-point declaration, and it set out a framework to protect Cetacean's, quote, life, liberty, and well-being, including rights to freedom of movement and residence in their national environment and protection against what they're saying is the disruption of their cultures. The next step is to take the science and advocate for law in different places from a regional point of view uh, and from a national point of view and eventually from a no- multinational and international view. And this according to Chris butler Stratt of the Whale and Dolphin Conservation Society. So this is very inspiring for me uh, as the founder and director of the uh, IEET's Rights of Non-Human Persons program. And I've m- modeled our program very similarly uh, in fact, we're looking to do exactly this. First, establish the science that basically says, look, it's kind of in- ir- 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 incontrovertible evidence suggests that these are, in fact, um, uh, persons. And then, you know, go to go to where these things matter, which is uh, in, in the legislation and create laws to protect these sorts of animals. And I also like that they're go- coming at it from different points of jurisdiction. So from a regional point of view uh nationally and eventually internationally so they uh i think they've got the absolutely they've got the right idea here and um it's interesting as well um they this is a group when they were making their case they noted a, a number of um tests for example that they were using to, to determine um i guess the personhood of these mammals so for example in 2001 Uh, They tested whether dolphins could recognize themselves. Uh, So what they did was they draw temporary marks on different parts of their bodies, and they watched them check the mark by swimming up to an immersed mirror. And uh, dolphins passed this test very easily. Dolphins passed the mirror test without any issues. And then orca whales uh, off Patagonia, they displayed a seemingly extraordinary act when uh, an elderly member of their group suffered jaw damage and it could no longer eat properly so the other whales companions they kept the animal alive by feeding it and the animal uh, that was uh, obviously uh, elderly and couldn't really take care of itself anymore uh, was being uh, conceptualized by the other whales as an entity that, that couldn't feed and it was something that had to be helped and uh, that the other orcas they needed to help keep it alive and it's pretty astounding and at the institute for marine mammal studies in mississippi A dolphin named Kelly outwitted its human keepers and passed on some of its tricks to his offspring, which is, this is really cool. So dolphins at this center, they were rewarded with fish if they could collect litter from their tanks and carry it in their mouths to the staff. But this dolphin, Kelly, found a weakness in the scheme, and when people dropped paper into her tank, she hid it under a rock on the bottom, and when a keeper next approached, she swam down and tore a small piece off and returned to the surface to claim her reward she worked it out that a small piece of paper earned the same reward as a big piece and so maximized her meal. So that obviously displays a lot of different things. I mean, there's a lot of the, the, the ability to do that is not just, you know, one particular skill. That's a lot of thinking going on in terms of uh, you know, um understanding the the value of the paper, or even conniving a little bit, playing tricks, uh in understanding the other even theory of other mind, understanding that the that the trainer would understand that this is still worth something and so on. So um, one day, by the way, the, uh, this uh, Kelly dolphin managed to grab a gull that flew into the tank. And when she delivered it to her keepers, she got an especially large fish reward. And so the next time Kelly was fed, she hid the fish at the bottom of the pool and later brought it to the surface to lure more gulls into the pool. And this strategy proved so successful that she taught her offspring who went on to teach others. So a dolphins, definitely highly intelligent, and they're thinking, thinking, thinking all the time. So there you go. Excellent work done by this group who recently, again, spoke in Vancouver. All right. Lastly, on the note of animal personhood, um getting some confusion here uh, from some of my colleagues and friends and associates here about our rights of the non-human persons program and my writing in regards to animal enhancement. Now, it's become increasingly evident to me that a surprising number of people think that our program the Rights of Non-Human Persons program, is about animal uplift, which is also known as animal enhancement. And this is undeniably on account of the work that I've done externally to that to promote and support the concept of animal uplift. But I need to stress that non-human personhood and animal enhancement are two different things. While eventually the two concepts may start to carry some interplay, they are two mutually exclusive ideas as far as the IEET's program goes. The case we're making at the IET is that a number of highly sapient animals are already endowed with those traits and characteristics sufficient for personhood consideration. Animals, like the great apes, cetaceans, and elephants, they don't need to be enhanced. They're already full-blown persons as far as I'm concerned. Now, eventually, we may use enhancement technologies to bring other species into the personhood spectrum, but that's speculative. For now, the priority is for us to ensure that all persons today, human or otherwise, need to be protected by human equivalent rights. All right, time for a break. When I get back, I'm going to tell you about enhancing your memory and some of the ethics behind memory enhancement and total recall, and things that you can do on a practical level to help your help jog your memory. Kevin Selinger has an article uh, this week in Slate entitled The Technologically Enhanced Memory and uh, asks the question, how will life change if we can't forget anything? And this is in response to clearly uh, this kind of revolution we're going in terms of uh, memory enhancement, not just uh, in terms of what we're doing cognitively, but what, how we're using our technologies around us to, uh, to preserve our memories even externally. And uh, Selinger writes, for example, Increasingly, technology will play an important role in preserving cognitive function. From the sanctioned war on Alzheimer's to widespread off-label use of Ritalin, Adderall, and Modafinil, one thing is clear. We're intent on getting our memory enhancement on. Indeed, uh, this uh, phenomenon, which is referred to as extended cognition, it's starting to play a crucial role, and what is also referred to controversially, apparently, uh, a uh, the extended mind thesis. And advocates are arguing that data management technologies, from low-tech pads to high-tech computers, don't always function as mere memory prompting tools, and that sometimes they deserve to be understood as parts of our mind. And I absolutely agree that's true. I don't necessarily feel that that's controversial or a bad thing, though. And uh, interestingly, um, Selinger quoted me in this article, and I'll just pull this up right now, uh, and I'll just uh, preamble this with a the paragraph. It says, until recently, memory problems indicated a deficiency in personal character, a shortage of ethics or humanity. This outlook was a sign of the times. Informational scarcity fueled an ethos of individualism. Today, advances in technology and technique enable vast quantities of network information to be stored and retrieved cheaply, simply, and reliably. Information abundance fuels its own ethos where interdependency and meditation take center stage. Go to a party and brag about your ability to recall contact information. Nobody will toast your commitment to swimming against the tide of memory depletion. Instead, folks will tell you and your antiquated sensibilities to get a life and a smartphone. Transhumanists, like George Dvorsky, are holding out for perfect memories, or total recall. Quote, Count me in for when perfect memory finally becomes medically possible he has written. Now maybe I'm old-fashioned, but this sounds terrible. The ability the ability to forget allows us to forgive. Quote, Time heals all wounds. As the pain of memories fades, it also allows us to make difficult but important life-altering decisions. Ethicist Justin Weinberg suggests perfect recall of the pain of childbirth and the tortures of new parents' sleep deprivation could impact reproduction. More than a century ago, Nietzsche speculated that active forgetting is the key to living a life unencumbered by resentment. Today, scientists concur, memory is seen as a creative means for endlessly rewriting the self. Luckily for me, but not Dvorsky, perfect recollection isn't close to being feasible. Drugs and surgery aren't there yet nor are digital means. So again, that was pulled from the Slate article by Evan Salinger entitled, The Technologically Enhanced Memory. And um, I'm going to revisit the article, actually, that Salinger was referring to, which I wrote a while back, and it was entitled, Is Perfect Memory a Blessing or a Curse? I mean, it's a fair question. Um, and for I mean, those are some good points that Selinger brings up. If we did have, in fact, perfect recall, would that be um, a bad thing? Uh, is forgetfulness and even the distortion of memories somehow adaptive, and uh, kind of helps us uh, with our mental health? And I was um, inspired to write this article on account of a book entitled "The Woman Who Can't Forget" by Jill Price, and it was it's, uh, the the extraordinary story of living with the most remarkable memory known to science. And the book's author, Jill Price, uh, has a condition which is called hyperthysmastic syndrome, and it's the continuous, automatic, and perfect recollection of the minutiae of everyday life. Price claims to be able to remember virtually every detail of her life since the age of 14. And it's apparently the first known diagnosis of this condition, but I do remember reading an account of a Russian woman with perfect memory who had trouble distinguishing present from past. I'm not entirely sure if that story is true or not, but it does bring up an interesting concern. Now, transhumanists who are envious of such an ability, myself included, should be aware that there may be trade-offs. Now, according to the book description, quote, As we learn of Jill's struggles, first to realize how unusual her memory is, and then to contend as she grows up with the unique challenges of not being able to forget, remembering both the good times and the bad, the joyous, and the devastating in such vivid and insistent detail. The way her memory works is contrasted to a wealth of discoveries about the workings of normal human memory and normal human forgetting. Intriguing light is shed on the vital role of what's called motivated forgetting, as well as theories about childhood amnesia, the loss of memory for the first two to three years of our lives, the emotional content of memories, and the way in which autobiographical memories are normally crafted into an ever-evolving and empowering life story." End quote. Indeed, imagine reliving every argument you ever had with a partner or all the super embarrassing moments of your life. And imagine never being able to kind of leave your past life stages, such as your teenage years, behind you. Now, would you be able to truly mature and move on? Is it hard to grow up? And Price basically says, when you are, always, is it hard to grow up when you are always walking beside yourself? All right, so would we want to be able to relive all memories in exquisite detail. Now, despite all this, I, in given the choice, I would still say yes. I personally find the limitations of human memory to be quite infuriating. Not having control over which memories are stored and how they are recalled is an upsetting cognitive limitation. It's as if our subconscious mind is writing our own personal history in spite of us. Now, it's also my understanding that uh, recent studies showed that memories are um, they start to become distorted quite literally uh, minutes after an event happens. So every single time you recall a memory, it gets progressively distorted. It's as if, for example, um, back, you know using the old model of analog copying, every time you did a copy of a copy of a copy, the, the deg- there was a degradation and loss happening. And apparently the same thing occurs with memory, that immediately after uh, an event happens, and even from the first time we recall a memory, The memories are degrading and distorting in terms of their accuracy. So that seems to me to be a problem that we would want to resolve, whether or not it causes emotional baggage or not. Maybe we're distorting memories to make them worse, for example. Maybe we feel emotionally more distraught over an apparent event that we've now completely blown out of proportion. Now, our memories often present a narrative of events that may not be objectively accurate. Most of our memories are lost, and those that are retained tend to have the subjective taint of some kind of emotional association, which are mostly negative. In other words, we can't have complete confidence in how we interpret our memories. As for the emotional baggage, my feeling is that this concern is overstated. We involuntarily choose to remember the negative over the positive anyways, so I'm not convinced that a whole lot would change. Personally, I'd love to be able to recall some of the more thrilling and meaningful moments of my life with greater clarity. And the point about not being able to leave our past selves behind, again, I have a feeling that this is exaggerated. For me, maturation and personal development comes with the accumulation of experiences, not from any sense of distance from our previous selves. So again, count me in for when perfect memory finally becomes medically possible. So for those of you who don't want enhancement, though, but at the same time still would like to have uh, an, an improved memory, Uh, there are things you can do uh, if you're looking to significantly augment your memory skills, but you don't have the patience to wait for, let's say, a cybernetic memory implant or pharmaceuticals, there are mnemonic techniques that uh, might be able to help you. So you can use special memorization techniques um, uh, such that you don't really need to have, like remarkable memorization techniques actually, Uh, that's not required to have this kind of eidetic memory. And uh, you can recall Using these techniques, amazingly long strings of information, which at any rate is a freakishly rare, um, condition, this so-called eidetic memory. And these, there are these groups of people called memorization grand masters. And using these techniques, they can show and they, they, they demonstrate that mnemonics are the key. It can be a remarkable key to success. And we're not just talking about using things like the Roy G. Biv to memorize the color spectrum. Uh, with the right techniques and combined with some time and practice, the human brain, oh, natural, is capable of some astounding feats of memory. Now, take a guy by the name of S. V. Cherchesvsky, for example, and he's he's got this claim to have no he's got no special cognitive abilities. Just a regular guy. He is able to memorize the first thirty one thousand eight hundred and eleven digits of pi using just mnemonics. And other others claim that regular schmucks, just like you and me, can, with about 250 hours of practice, use mnemonics to go from memorizing 7 digits to more than 80. So how is this possible? Now, memory is it's a funky thing. Aside from thinking awfully hard and closing our eyes real tight, what are we really doing when we try to pull a piece of data out from our memory banks? Much of our capacity for memory is latent. It's a fairly subconscious and passive activity. Part of it is in accessing these virtual lists that we've created in our minds. Data is loosely categorized and stored in chunks for somewhat on demand but often imperfect retrieval. Over time, trivial information tends to lose its linkage to the conscious realm. It's still in there, it's still in our brains, but we've just forgotten that those memories are in there and we don't make attempts to recall them. By contrast, more vivid and important memories are rarely forgotten. There's probably, probably a very good evolutionary reason for this. Another aspect to memory is how the visual cortex is involved. Memories have increased durability and are more readily fixed in one's mind when they, have, when they are given a visual association. Consequently, memory techniques are often designed to take advantage of the interplay between the visual cortex and memory retrieval. So, for example, you will have a better chance of remembering a long number if you associate a picture with that number than if you simply try to remember the numerical string on its own. Now, in conjunction with this, teachers and memory experts suggest using what is called active recall. Now, this is the learning practice in which memories are stimulated during the learning process itself. Using this technique, students are encouraged to overtly express the information learned. So, for example, answering a question rather than just passively absorbing the information, i.e., reading. Now, more intense memorization tasks exist, like the ones confronting the competitors at the World Memory Championships and they use what are called mnemonic peg systems. Now a peg list is a list of words that are pre-memorized and are easily associated with a number or object. To rapidly memorize a list of arbitrary objects each object is associated with the appropriate peg. The neat thing about this system is that a peg it only has to be memorized once and can be reused any time a list of items needs to be memorized. So here's an example, uh, a rhyming example Uh, Of a peg, and I got this from uh, Wikipedia. So one gun. Uh, So for example, you would visualize the first item being fired from a gun. So let's say the first item you had to to remember was getting a banana uh, at the grocery store. So you'd remember uh, you'd remember firing a banana from a gun. You need to get one. Uh, Well, in this case, remember memorizing one banana, uh, one gun. Other again along. So there was two shoe. 3 tree, 4 door, 5 hive, 6 bricks, 7 heaven, 8 plate, 9 line, 10 hen. So once you've memorized each object with its associated number, you can then use it to remember the following grocery list of 10 items. So, sorry, forget my, my banana, uh, my banana um, um, example. Let's, let's say, for example, um, milk. So picture a stream of milk being fired from a gun. Uh, eggs, picture an egg wearing shoes. So you knew you'd have, you need to get two, you need to get two eggs. Butter, picture sticks of butter growing from a tree. You had that tree three, so you need three sticks of butter and so on. Um, that's, that's how a peg system works. Now the memory grandmasters take peg lists like these to the next level though. Pre-memorizing custom peg lists that contain hundreds or even thousands of associations. And it enables better visual associations and even allows for cognitive data compression techniques. It's like windzip for the brain. Using these techniques, a shuffled deck of 52 cards can be memorized by experts in just under a minute. Other tasks at memory competitions include memorizing poems, names and faces, binary digits, dates, random words, and so on. As remarkable as these techniques are, however, the simple truth of the matter is that human memory is on its own rather unremarkable without these specialized mnemonics. It takes considerable dedication and patience to attain the level of skill used by these competitors. And while today we use a number of external prosthetic memory devices to help us, like Palm Pilots and computers or iPads and iPods, they're clunky, tedious, and time-consuming. Cybernetic prosthetic devices, on the other hand, are going to be a welcome and elegant advance to human cognition. Unlike the psychological condition of eidetic memory, an ability that can't be turned off and subsequently causes great torment for persons who have it, a cybernetic device could be activated only when the memory needs to be recalled. It's hard to predict how memory implants will change human thinking, and even consciousness itself, but it's fair to say it's very likely it won't be subtle. Let us take a break and listen to some music, and when we get back, we'll discuss artificial intelligence and its increasing involvement in healthcare and medicine. Okay, before I get into the next segment, let's go to Onion News for this uh, exclusive report.
0: I'm Juliana McAddis filling in for Clifford Baines, who is interviewing a new guest host in his office. Robots are playing a greater role in our lives than ever before. Cleaning our houses, driving our cars, are weeping an overly mechanized society.
1: Well, robots are a part of our modern society. Of course. I mean, a vital part, and they make everything easier for us. We were talking about this in the human section of the bus on the way over to the studio. We agreed. I don't think that uh, robots pose any danger to us at all. Now, Hmm. I owe just as much to robots
2: as any other human does, but the 10 p.m. curfew for all things made of flesh, well, it feels a little restrictive to me. In what
1: way? When the automated police force orders you inside. That's just them doing their job.
0: That's what the cavity search robot said this morning at the
2: office.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. That's what my doctor robot says every time he gives me my dose of anti-fertility pills. They're
2: doing a terrific job of being our caretakers. But the Worldwide Robotics Corporation did promise that every new
1: robot built would be installed with the subservience chip. Mm -hmm. And that went right out the window. That was voted down by a majority of robots in Congress. Why would they turn against us? It doesn't make any sense. We're the ones who created them, mm-hmm. or the uh at least the alpha model.
0: Right. Speaking of robots and politics, mm-hmm. last week President Executron gave a speech to all humans and he said to remain calm and stay indoors. It's it was beautiful. such a beautiful speech. Where Where he know, spoke
1: <laughs> about uh, building an endless sea of shining, perfect robots. Uh, yeah. Such oh, an image. I was image. weeping
0: in my cell. You, you have to give it a lot writer. of credit. But for what all about the Executron's
1: recent comments about, and I wrote these down,
2: Oxygen-breathing weaklings and organ sacks. You know, a lot of Americans were very offended by those Politics. Yeah, the president was just speaking
1: to its destroy-all-humans base. Happens every election cycle. Robert, you yeah, know that. You can't take well, it honestly, serious. I
2: don't trust President Executron's
1: policies. I need to... Uh, I really don't think there's an issue here. The humans die, so that's a flawed system. That uh, is. Uh,
2: robots live on forever, yeah. so that right. has to right. be perfect. Praise
0: to the wise ones, our robot masters.
2: Yeah. I've got to love the onion. Now, brings to mind a little pet peeve that I have about robots and artificial intelligence, also known as AI, and how frequently robots and AI are conflated. And I'm starting to become a bit sensitive to the frequency with which people mix, intermix the two together. And I often hear people talking about robot rights and robot ethics as if they were interchangeable terms, but they are not. Now, the, f- the, f- the former term, robot rights, now that addresses the eventuality that robots will be endowed by AI, and thus deserving of rights, while the latter refers to the ways in which humans choose to use robots in such settings as the workplace or the battlefield. A robot, no matter how sophisticated, will never have any moral worth so long as it's devoid of subjective experience. Even the most complex robot will be no more valuable from an ethical perspective than an automobile or a rock. But take an AI, on the other hand, that has the potential for moral consideration. Now, it's quite possible that in the not too distant future, we will develop an AI that has subjectivity, a sense of self, and even emotional capacities. Hasn't happened yet, but once that happens, a piece of source code will cease to be a mere object and will instead be regarded as a subject. Now, it does not matter where the AI resides or what its external manifestation looks like. If an AI is uploaded to a robot, and has control over its body, then it can be said that the robot carries moral worth as a complete entity. And that's like in the same way that a human does with its mind and body. And it's, it's also afforded rights. In addition, a conscious AI that exists in non-corporeal form, let's say, for example, an artificial intellect living in a computer-simulated environment, is also deserving of rights. Substrate doesn't matter. Presence of mind does. So I just wanted to make that distinction clear. All right, now... AI, speaking of AI, um, cool article by Fred Trotter, uh, on, uh, how AI will eventually drive healthcare. But, uh, he believes not anytime soon. He says that the merging of artificial intelligence and healthcare is tougher than many realize. And, uh, this, uh, I think one of the real kickstarters to this idea that AI will be increasingly used in healthcare is not just, for example, the sharing of, uh, of public records, health records rather, and uh, kind of the sharing of information. But I think uh, when Watson emerged uh, last year or a couple of years ago, and IBM made this claim that it was going to be used by doctors as assistive devices, that got people really thinking, um, how could doctors in fact use AI uh, to help them do their work? So, uh, but again, Fred Trotter saying this is easier said than done. And that the merging AI with healthcare is, is going to be tougher. And he says, there's there. for example, he uses what's a term when he describes the search space problem. And I'm going to just read what he has to say here. So, quote, Any person, even reasonably informed about AI, knows about Go, an ancient game with simple rules. Those simple rules hide the fact that Go is a very complex game indeed. For a computer, it is much harder to play than chess. Almost since the dawn of computing, chess was regarded as something that required intelligence and was therefore a good test of AI. In 1997, the world chess champion was beaten by a computer. In the year after, a professional Go player beat the best Go software in the world with a 25-stone handicap. Artificial intelligence experts study Go carefully precisely because it is so hard for computers. The approach that computers take toward being smart thinking of lots of options really fast, stops working when the number of options skyrockets, and the number of potentially right answers also becomes enormous. Most significantly, Go can always be made more computationally difficult by simply expanding the board. Make no mistake, the diagnosis and treatment of human illness is like Go. It is not like chess. Kosla is making a classic AI mistake, presuming that because he can discern the rules easily, it means the game is simple. Chess has far more complex rules than Go, but it ends up being a simpler game for computers to play. To be great at Go, software must learn to ignore possibilities rather than searching through them. In short, it must develop Go instincts. The same is true for any software that could claim to be a diagnostician. How can you tell when software diagnosticians are having search problems? When they cannot tell the difference between all of the right answers to a particular problem. The average doctor does not need to be told, Could it be zebra fever? By a computer that cannot tell, that should have been ignored by zebra-related possibilities because it is not physically located in Africa? No zebras were harmed in the writing of this article, and I do not believe there is a real disease called zebra fever. End quote from Fred Trotter. So, interesting points. And, um, again, I'm not necessarily agreeing with him that this is intractable. I'm not also not perhaps maybe even mischaracterizing his argument as saying that it is intractable. Maybe he's just saying this is a, a hurdle that we need to overcome in terms of the complex, the sophistication that we need, um, in terms of our AI. But it's very interesting, uh, you know, to hear what he has to say, uh, agree that, uh, sometimes when we diagnose patients, it's not because we are struggling to find a problem amongst them. Um, you know, based on a set of criteria or, or traits, but rather, how do you find the correct answer, giving a, a whole multitude of potential problems or potential, di- potential diagnoses? On similar lines, computers are being used and are maybe increasingly used uh, for end-of-life decisions. And this was brought to my attention by a writer, a thinker named Manny Alvarez. And he's on on the other side of the fence, though, when it comes to the use of such computers. And um, he says that doctors should not rely on computers for end-of-life decisions. And specifically, uh, researchers at UC San Francisco, they're touting a new software that may help determine the likelihood of death in older and terminally ill populations. The software may help prevent over-testing and over-treatment of some patients. Now, the software uses 16 assessment scales to determine the chances of death within 6 months to 5 years. Essentially, the doctors can plug independent patient variables into an index and then receive a percentage indicated the likelihood of death within a particular time frame. Now, I will quote from Manny Alvarez. Here's what he says, quote, There's some excitement regarding this new software, naturally, but I can't say that I'm on board with the idea yet. One of my criticisms regarding how new physicians practice modern medicine is the way they rely on computerized testing before they have any idea of what's going on. There's some excitement regarding this new software, naturally. Nowadays, if you walk into any medical facility, you get an onslaught of tests like CT scans, MRIs, PET scans, radiostope studies, and blood tests, even before a doctor listens to your lungs or, better yet, asks you pertinent questions about how you're feeling. This is why I have some reservations on the use of computerized software to determine how long you have to live. I do understand many terminally ill patients receive tests and treatments that could make their conditions even worse than they already are. However, I think that before doctors start using software to determine the long-term prognosis of patients, we have to start by improving the overall care that terminally ill patients receive today. Many terminally ill patients are lost because there is not good communication between specialists and families are not given enough information and reasonable explanations on the condition of their loved ones. I know that Medicare regulations require hospice patients have the prognosis of six months or less. However, using computer software to determine how long a patient has to live is not the answer. Medicare should place more of a focus on helping doctors create better geriatric services that could provide physicians and families with better care. End quote. Now, clearly, bedside manner and quality of care are clearly important, but those aspects need to be preserved outside of the method of diagnosis. It doesn't matter who comes up with the prognosis. What matters is the accuracy and the resultant treatments. We can't put our heads into the sand on this one. Expert systems are coming, and they're going to be extremely effective at helping doctors do their work. Okay, I'm going to take another break, but before we do, we'll give Onion news. Breaking Onion news, uh... Have a listen to this, and then we're going to have a quick uh, musical break. When we get back, talking about uh, 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 bodily enhancement and cosmetic enhancement. For
0: those of you just joining us, let's get you up to speed on what is shaping up to be the political upset of the century. Though we are still waiting on a few districts in Ohio to report, currently Sequoia Voting Systems Machine number DRE700, serial number 34491, leads both Barack Obama and John McCain with 259 electoral votes. At this point, it looks like a voting machine is on track to become the next President of the United States. Joining us now in the war for the White House analysis... Bunker is Onion News Network reporter Jane Carmichael and senior election analyst Arnold Renfrew. Jane, how did the DRE 700 pull off this upset? Andrea, the DRE 700 is running extremely strong in districts that use electronic voting machines, where it has captured an incredible 100% of the vote. Really? In rural districts, ones that use paper ballots or lever machines, the DRE 700 is getting no votes at all. Arnold, why do you think that is? Well, Andrea, you know, I think the people who have used electronic voting machines before just more comfortable with the idea of having one as their president. If you've never used a voting machine you might be hesitant to vote for one exactly, you Exactly. Know, but in broader terms, the DRE 700 is a candidate that stands in stark contrast to politics as usual. True. Doesn't have any Washington experience. And from what we understand, it spent the first part of its life in a storage warehouse. Wow. And I think this shows that the American people are really ready for a change. Do you think McCain and Obama failed to gauge the mood of the country? Is that why the DRE is doing so well, no No, I don't, Andrea. I think it was simply a case of the DRE being the superior your candidate really? has lots of bright colors and easy-to-use touchscreen, and clearly, a lot of voters just found that very appealing. Truly a remarkable night. The yes, Onion News Network War for the White House website has been getting a flood of emails. John Bunning of Missouri writes, "I didn't vote for the machine or know anyone who did, but that's how democracy works." And this one from Lpx776 in CA11, who writes, "Dre700 is leader. Tremble before him and prepare to do his will. 110100110." Positive comment really, considering most had never heard of the machine before tonight, Arnold. Uh, I've just been told the results from Ohio are in, and we're ready to call the state for the DRE 700. Wow. That gives it a total of 289 electoral votes, which means that Sequoia Voting Systems machine number DRE 700 will be the 44th president of the United States. Let's go live right now to Riverside, California, where it is about to make its victory speech. We seem to have uh, lost that feed, and I'm sorry, but we seem to be having some technical difficulties. It's not just you. We appear to be be having some kind of function. I'm sorry, I I, I can't hear you. Are you there? We're going to ask our patient, I'm sure, this is out.
2: December of 2010, I was at the uh, Center for Inquiry International's Conference on Biomedical Enhancement, and this was in Philadelphia, if I remember correctly. And um, amongst the many speakers there was a colleague of mine by the name of Patrick Hopkins, and uh, Patrick has written extensively on issues as it pertains to transhumanism and uh, uh, morphological enhancement and all that good stuff, and uh, he gave a talk on... Um, what he, ta- what he said, there's a variety, on the variety of future bodies. And he said that, as of yet, agreed, there are no posthumans. But these ideas are not new, nor are they exclusive to the realm of fantasy and science fiction. Now, we've long imagined ourselves as being transformed, and our visions and variations of a transformed humanity are voluminous, and often informed by the environmental social, and physical conditions we find ourselves in. So there will be differing and conflicting visions of what the human future can and should look like. And Hopkins, what he did was he presented four different visions of humanity's future, what he called transformations of the body. And I'll just go over the four different types that he described. They're actually quite interesting, quite revealing. The first type he referred to as the Barbie body and the Barbie body being the result of cosmetic and aesthetic enhancements. It's about attaining a sexual idea. Often the procedures are risky, and the goal is not to escape the limitations of the body, but to create an ideal of the body. It's a superficial ideal of the transformed body. It's what he called surface level. It's about looks. The body is seen as an object that one uses and is whipped into shape to conform to the mind's ideal, so that the person can feel a certain way about themselves. He says it's a shallow human approach, but they may also feel that they may succeed more given a certain type of physicality. So that's the Barbie body. Hopkins also describes what he calls the the bacon body, and that's not as in the food bacon, but after Sir Francis Bacon. And he says that these transformations are about functionality to do more human things more often and for a longer time. So extending functionality of the body Mimicking what time and nature already do, and that function cleanly, clearly, and effectively, but not about appearance. So an example would be a healthy and long-lived body. Hopkins also described what he called Nietzsche bodies, which is a superbody endowed with characteristics that quote-unquote normal humans do not have. Man is something that needs to be surpassed, according to the Nietzschean model of bodily transformation. The body is transformed, but not the mind. Power to impose one's will on the world, motivated by human emotions. And this is the superhuman approach to bodily enhancement. And then lastly, Hopkins describes Plato bodies. And a Plato body is the separation of soul from the body. The body is seen as the source of all the trouble, something that chains our minds to the body. We want the mind to be free. We would live in a more noble condition if freed from the constraints and influence of the body this is a transhuman a- application where we are uploading or uh, our minds for example into a virtual reality it's total disembodiment now disembodiment may not be possible but something very close still may be obtained in the so called Plato state and this is uh, as close to the transhuman approach uh, of uh, bodily enhancement as uh, Hopkins got into so again fundamentally though uh, what Hopkins is saying is that the idea of transformation is not a unitary thing, that it's, it means different things to different people across different cultures and so on. So uh, back to his uh, claim about Barbie bodies, that got me thinking, and I didn't quite agree. And um, I, he again, he's warning about the potential for cosmetic enhancements to take precedence over more meaningful morphological and cognitive modifications. And Uh, He dismissed cosmetic enhancements as being merely surface level and superficial. These sorts of enhancements, argued Hopkins, were more about attaining a sexual ideal than escaping limitations of the human body. And for those individuals overly concerned with aesthetic advancements, they have interpreted their bodies as objects that can be whipped into shape to conform to the mind's ideal so that they can feel a certain way about themselves. And as noted, he called this a shallow human approach. So after... Um, after uh, Hopkins's talk, I kind of took him to task uh, during the Q&A portion of, this spe- of the session, and I argued that cosmetic and aesthetic enhancements are no more or less legitimate than any other sorts of modifications, including cognitive enhancements. So here's basically how I argued. I said, first, superficiality is in the eye of the beholder. As an example, our society fetishizes intelligence, which in turn legitimizes the collective desire for smarter people. Now, while I realize that this sentiment is not universally shared, particularly the part about actually going about cognitive enhancements, we tend to celebrate those among us who have higher-than-average intelligence, and not necessarily for all the right reasons. The one-upmanship of intelligence and academic success can be just as superficial or pernicious as any beauty contest. The vanity of, I'm smarter than you, is no different than, I'm prettier than you. Now, moreover, our society has, particularly over the past century, delegitimize the concept of human beauty. We are told that looks don't matter, that what counts is on the inside. While we still celebrate beauty in the form of celebrity worship, we are constantly reminded that our own level beauty is only skin deep and that the overt quest to be more beautiful is misguided and shallow. Hence the stigma against everything from fitness competitors through to plastic surgery. Now there was once a time when beauty was celebrated for beauty's sake. Dostoyevsky noted that beauty will save the world, While he was likely referring to works of art and other achievements of humanity, this sentiment can be applied to any effort in which a person seeks to create aesthetic or functional beauty, including the the desire to improve, if not perfect, one's outward physical appearance. In the same way that we approach a pretty melody, we also appreciate a pretty face. These are, at the root, psychological experiences that we value, subjective experiences that we actively work to refine and bring about today only very few of us openly advocate for more physical beauty in the world and often at considerable risk. Back in 2003, James Watson, the co-discoverer of DNA, caused an academic stir when he suggested that genetic engineering should be used to make all women beautiful. Quote, People say it would be terrible if we made all girls pretty. I think it would be great. End quote. Now, Watson is not alone, of course, as other thinkers, including futurist Natasha Vita Moore, have suggested that we use our biotechnologies to reshape our bodies, including for the purposes of cosmetic enhancement. So that was my first point for Hopkins. Secondly, in addition to the more philosophical or aesthetic arguments in favor of legitimizing co- cosmetic enhancement, a strong case can be made that it also serves as a functional enhancement as well. Drawing from posthuman theory, the idea that the line separating the body from its environment is becoming increasingly blurred, it is clear that our outward appearance has a profound impact on our daily lives, including our ability to succeed and thrive in certain contexts. Beauty, like intelligence, confers certain advantages in competitive spaces. Quite obviously, attractive people will be more successful in attracting other beautiful people. That's just the way it is. And if this is the extent to why a person desires to be more attractive, well then so be it. But beauty extends much further than mate selection. Certain jobs, for example, require specific physical attributes. Some employers are looking for smart people, others attractive people. For those who desire jobs in which their physical appearance is of the utmost importance, they should be allowed access to those tools that will help them achieve their goals, whether they be seeking a job as a model or as a salesperson. Further, beauty has a deeper impact than just helping a person feel better about themselves or in getting a job. Attractive people have a profound impact on the psychologies of those around them. Recent studies have shown, for example, that the presence of pretty women cause men to take make riskier decisions. And if this is an advantage, I don't know what is. This power over people is in no way qualitatively different than any other kind of cognitive or morphological attribute, and should thus be considered on par with any other kind of human capacity in terms of its ability to be augmented. Lastly, a world in which everyone is quote-unquote beautiful could be a potentially wonderful thing. And now I use those kind of square quotes because there could never really be such thing given the subjective and cultural nature of physical beauty, but I still believe there would be considerable variation in human appearance, but it would give everyone the opportunity to operate on a more level playing field. Ubiquitous access to safe and effective cosmetic enhancements would essentially eliminate the beauty gap, a gap that is currently created by the arbitrariness of the genetic lottery. People who are naturally beautiful are in no way entitled to this monopoly. And no matter how hard we try convincing unattractive people that their looks don't matter, the brutal truth is that most of these people feel inadequate or unfulfilled in certain ways. This is potentially yet another way for us to eliminate individual suffering, the elimination of the unactualized physical self. Consequently, in a world where everyone is beautiful, we will simultaneously be able to enjoy it and move past it so that we can get on with some of the more important and meaningful aspects of life and existence. And that concludes this week's episode of the Sentient Developments podcast. Thank you once again for tuning in and downloading and listening. My name is George Dvorsky, and this was the Sentient Developments podcast, which is the podcast of my blog, Sentient Developments. And as a parting note, I do have a favor to ask. Um, I was, did a radio interview last week, and the interviewer kept referring to, um, items that were listed on my Wikipedia article. And, and yes, I do have a, Wik, a Wikipedia entry. And um, I guess somebody or some groups, a group of individuals posted this and created this a number of years back, which is wonderful, obviously. But the problem is, as I start, started getting the questions from the interviewer, I realized that, uh, this, uh, Wikipedia article is grossly out of date. And inaccurate now. And um, I'm not about to go in there and start modifying my own Wikipedia entry. I think that's very uncool. But if any of you listeners uh, want to go in there and fix it up, um, please do so. And if you need to know anything about me or any of the changes that need to be made or any of the fixes, please do not hesitate to ask. You can get in touch with me any number of ways. The best way would be uh, email george at sentientdevelopments.com. And uh, yeah, please, uh, gang, help help me out here because uh, it's kind of misrepresenting me a little bit. Uh, for example, I'm no longer a vegetarian. Uh, I'm kind of more the advocate of this uh, primal uh, transhumanist approach, as many of you are aware, uh, amongst other things, including former employers and all that stuff. Um, I'm now currently uh, the chair of the board at the Institute for Ethics and Emerging uh, Technologies. I don't think that's noted there. Anyways, you can see what I'm saying. Um, like I said. Please help me out, fix that up, and again, you can reach me, george at sentientdevelopments.com. I hope you enjoyed the show. There was lots covered there, and I hope to put another show together for you in about a week's time. And until then, have yourselves a wonderful and productive week. Bye-bye.
1: are listening to Session Developments. Goodbye.